Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, this is Roy Green. Have a listen to uh, what we aired today, Sunday, June the 10th, on this podcast of The Roy Green Show. More reaction to Donald Trump's attack on Justin Trudeau with John Thaler, the founder and CIO at Jat Capital Partners on Wall Street. Celebrated conservative author, columnist, and broadcaster Charles Krauthammer released an announcement on Thursday that he has perhaps only weeks to live as cancer has metastasized throughout his body. Krauthammer has a great Canadian influence. He attended school in Montreal as well as university at McGill. I had the opportunity in 2014 to speak with Charles Krauthammer. Catherine Swift, economist, workingcanadians.ca and former president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, takes a look at the G7 conference and whether or not anything was established and accomplished economically. Well, it looks as though the terrorists have learned something from Omar Khadr, the imprisoned terrorists. Uh, those in the United States are suing the Bureau of Corrections, and those in the UK are possibly going to sue for human rights violations. I wonder how much money that's going to cost the taxpayers. Scott Newark, former Alberta Crown Attorney and adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University, where his courses include this information. The College of Physicians and Surgeons in British Columbia issued a news release. It's instructing BC doctors to not refuse chronic pain patients and to not refuse prescribing opioid pain medication to such patients because to do so violates human rights law. We're going to be hearing from Andrew Coster. He's the British Columbia chronic pain patient who challenged the issue of prescribing opioids in British Columbia. And Marvin Ross discovered significant errors in the ICES study on chronic pain and opioids. We, by the way, invited the CEO of ICES, Dr. Michael Schul, to be on this program. Never heard back. If you're flying this summer, what are the most common questions you would want to ask the captain in the left seat on your plane. You know, the most fundamental question and the one most people still want to answer is, how does this thing get in the air? Patrick Smith is an airline captain. He's the author of Cockpit Confidential. I talked to him. Listen. The Roy Green Show podcast is the only podcast hosted by Roy Green. Which makes sense. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or Google Play. We're going to sit down with our federal counterparts. We're going to stand united. Uh, I know all all provinces should be standing united. Uh, with our federal counterparts, and we'll uh, we'll deal with that. Well, there's the uh, premier-elect for Ontario, Doug Ford, responding to what happened with uh, Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Trump um, at the Roy Green Show. My Twitter account from Ad Chad Bonnerts. What is a populist government? Populism at its root. Populism is a belief in the power of regular people and in their right to have control over their government, rather than a small group of political insiders or a wealthy elite. The word populism comes from the Latin word for people, populus. And I'm telling you, one of the problems for the people who believe in globalism, Justin Trudeau is one of them, is that they don't like the idea of populism and nationalism because it flies against what it is they have bought into. And so that G7 issue, that whole G7 conference, was designed to challenge Donald Trump. And they did, and he reacted. And I'm not surprised at the manner in which he reacted, but I'll say again, I don't think Air Force One was the best location to do that from. Joining me on the program is John Thaler. He's a founder and chief investment officer at JAT Capital Partners 
asset management and wealth management specialists. And uh, Mr. Thaler, I had a whole series of questions for you, and then yesterday happened at the G7, so I still have some of those questions. But I'd like to begin with your assessment of the tariffs issue and what has now developed into what we suspected eventually would happen, and that is the headbutting between the President of the United States and the Prime Minister of Canada. How do you assess that? Hey, Roy, good to speak to you. Uh, look, the President has made it very clear since, uh, really since his campaign, that he was going to pursue the best both economic outcome for the United States as well as the the best national security outcome for the United States. I think the 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 talk about tariffs uh, is really the beginning of a negotiation and and when it comes to tariffs i really think you really uh, the, the administration looks at the world in three buckets there's china by itself which really is the big end game which is a, a conversation by itself there's the eu and then there's nafta and inside nafta i think there's a very different um set of priorities for both Canada and Mexico. But uh, I think this is the beginning of a negotiation, and there's no question the president's going to pursue the best economic outcome for America. Well, his uh, his election phrase was, make America great again. And we, we've, we've certainly talked about that. Uh, do, you see, do you see an economic uh, reaction? Do you see a reaction on the markets to what has happened between Canada and the United States over the last couple of days, over the last 24 hours particularly. And do you also believe that there should be a special relationship that exists between Canada and the United States? We've long felt that we should have a special relationship and that we do have a special relationship. Maybe that isn't the case in 2018 going forward. I don't know. What do you think? Well, to, to your first point on the markets, um, there, there are a number of things driving the markets right now. That, you know, in the face of all of this uh, hubbub this week, the markets actually were quite strong. But I think that's more to do with uh, the digestion of uh, Q1 earnings, which we're just getting through. Uh, look, I, I think the question about the markets really strikes at the core of the issue with China, because there's a an enormous emphasis in the U.S. marketplace on near-term outcomes. Certainly, as a capitalist society, people are focused on return on capital over short periods of time. Uh, and as the Chinese government is, is uh, largely controlling their economy and has a 100-year view, they're making economic decisions that are totally uneconomic in the near term, but uh, are in their strategic interest over a long period of time. Uh, if we were to see a real trade war between the United States and its allies break out in any meaningful way, there's no question that's a negative for the markets in the near term. Uh, I think that the administration, however, is well advised to ignore near-term market outcomes in favor of what is the best long-term outcome for the United States. Uh, to the, your second point on, on the relationship between the United States and Canada, look, there's no question. Of all the players that are in this mix of President Trump trade war tariff uh, conversation, Canada has the most unique um, allied relationship with the United States as a consequence of the similar cultures, the geographic proximity, uh, the, you know, the, the trade balance is actually quite neutral. I think as you think about NAFTA as one of the three buckets I mentioned earlier, uh, there, you know, na the impact of NAFTA on the United States, or at least the perception of the, of the administration, is that there were, was a significant amount of job loss to Mexico as manufacturing flowed below the border. We also have a uh, an immigration and uh, drug issue flowing through that border that we don't have with Canada. I think when we're sitting here six or 12 months from now looking back on the outcome of this tariff stuff with, with the president, 
the, the outcome with Canada is likely to be quite benign. I would expect significant changes to Mexico. The president has talked about having unilateral, unilateral um, negotiations with Canada and Mexico. I think that's, that's the likely outcome. I think there are things he'd like to extract from Mexico that really aren't issues with Canada. So I, I, do, I do agree with your point that the, the allied relationship between the United States and Canada is very unique, uh, really unique amongst the whole uh, slew of global players we're talking about. Mm-hmm. We've long talked about the longest undefended border in the world. And I, I just saw that to me it was a case of during the G7, the tariffs issue intruded on what was going to be a, really a, um, a, more of a global economic conference. Uh, I'm not sure how to describe these G7 things any longer, uh, other than to say they're superfluous in my view. But anyway, we have them, $600 million, and you see what we got. Uh, The tariffs issue now between Canada and the United States, never mind Europe or or Mexico, just between Canada and the United States, how do you see that playing itself out? Because Mr. Trump yesterday was talking about the, uh, the, the auto sector, cars being brought into the United States from Canada, and he may take a look at that as far as tariffs are concerned. Do you see this becoming a, a, a more contentious issue or, or settling down over the next 12 months? Yeah, I see the tariff, the whole tariff conversation taking two phases. The first is, through the president's eyes, there's a starting point which is unfair. There, you know, If you look down the, the tariffs globally between the United States and its trading partners, there's a whole variety of asymmetric tariffs that are asymmetric against the United States that are really a reflection of, uh, of a negotiation that, that took place at a different point in time, particularly with the, with the European countries uh, who, uh, you know, post-World War II, you know, really were in need of uh, rebuilding their countries, and the United States was a, a dominant economic power and was in a position to assist that. Uh, so phase one of this is reset to neutral. Uh, he's talked about Fair trade, not uh, not a, not one that has uh, asymmetric tariffs. The second element of this, though, I think the president rightly looks at this as a businessman, as a pragmatist, and says the greatest strategic asset the United States has right now is our consumer. Uh, the United States is the largest customer for virtually every country on earth. Uh, and just as he would in any business negotiation, he wants to leverage that strategic asset to obtain the best economic deal possible. So I, I think as it relates to Canada, the phase one that I talked about, resetting to neutral, you know, look, uh, there are some things on dairy and, and, and autos where, you know, you could tweak here and there. Uh, as I said, it's a pretty benign neutral trade situation currently between the United States and Canada. There's not a, there's not a fix that needs to be made. I do think as we proceed into phase two of this, will the president look to obtain an asymmetric economic relationship in the United States' favor? I mean, I think it's not lost on him when we start talking, you know, building up the rhetoric between the two countries. The United States represents more than half of Canada's exports, and Canada represents slightly more than 10% of the United States' exports. So were we to find ourselves in a trade war, I think the president's perception is that's more painful for Canada by a mile than it is for the United States. So in phase two, where he's trying to find a, a favorable economic re- uh, arrangement, does he look to leverage that? I, I wouldn't surprise me if he did. But I think right now we are in phase one for sure. Canada is not really a, a concern, I don't think, on that on that basis. And as I said, I think all of this stuff is getting lost in the shuffle of China, which is the real end game. And frankly, all the players that were involved in the in the G7, ex China, uh, really should have their eyes on how are we going to slow right. 
that economic power. That's the real end game for the administration. Mr. Thaler, great talking to you. Thank you so much for the time. Founder, CIO at JAT Capital Partners. Thanks again. Thanks, Roy. All the best. Hit up Apple Podcasts or Google Play and subscribe to the Roy Green Show podcast. The Roy you want, when you want it. It won't even be hard. And in the end, we'll all get along. But they understand, and you know, they're trying to act like, well, we fought with you in the wars. They don't mention the fact that they have trade barriers against our farmers. They don't mention the fact that they're charging almost 300% tariffs. When it all straightens out, we'll all be in love again. That's sort of what we said last hour. It's it's a tumult now. T-U-M-U-L-T. A tumult. I like that word now. But it will straighten itself out. There's the... There's always the chance that it may not, in which case it could get really ugly. And uh, in which case you may just want to have a look and see what happened in the early 30s when a trade war broke out internationally and uh, how that extended the Great Depression. So there was Mr. Trump saying things are going to be okay. Here's Mr. Trudeau. I don't want to hurt American workers. They're our neighbors. They're our friends. But my job is to stand up for Canadian workers, Canadian interests, and I will do that without flinching. So there, yes, he... How can we lose? We have uh, Mr. Trudeau on our side, and Mr. Trump says we're all going to be in love again. It's just a spat. Uh, And I go back to uh, what I said earlier on the show. I looked at these tweets, and really, um, Donald Trump said that um, uh, Justin's false statements and then said, U.S., let's see, what do we very honest and, and dishonest and weak. Really, I mean, it may be tough diplomatic language, but on the streets where I grew up, that wouldn't even get you into a scrape. Catherine Swift is with us. I, uh, I always like to go to people who know how to settle me down. When I, when I can't see the horizon anymore, I have to call people who can see it and understand it and know what ha- happens between here and there. And Catherine certainly is one of those few people, the former CEO and president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, now working Canadians.ca. She's an economist and she understands politics very, very well, having worked with all sorts of political characters in this country for quite a few years. Catherine, your perspective of the spat between Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Trump and Mr. Trump tweeting from Air Force One? Well, I, it was, I do want to believe it was a spat. Uh, there's a fair bit of unpredictability coming from uh, the President of the United States right now, so I don't, you know, I think everyone's crystal ball can be a little mucky. I did, however, think that it wasn't. For, for Trudeau to go and have a press conference after Trump had left and, and said some derogatory things, I didn't think that was, you know, the smartest the smartest thing to do. Also, for Trump to be tweeting, I also didn't think was the smartest thing to do. Uh, there was all kinds of, I, I mean, I'm, I, I've been sort of reading about this, uh, you know, this morning and stuff, and I've been listening to the show too, Roy, for the last hour, and there's all kinds of kind of weird, weird references. There's U.S. people saying, well, Trudeau's doing this to undermine Trump in North Korea, and I'm thinking, come on, you know, this, this kind of stuff is just wacky. Trump is talking about auto, autos, the sacrosanct auto industry, and, and throwing tariffs there, and boy, that could really mess stuff up. I mean, so I guess on the one hand, oh, here I'm being an economist on the one hand, on the other hand, on the, on the one hand, 
uh, I'd like to think it was a spat and that there's always been a little bit of, you know, saber rattling in any of these negotiations and whatnot. But on the other hand, if something does go bad, uh, it will be very, very, very bad for Canada. So I don't think we can sort of gloss it over and, and say, oh, no biggie here. You know, everybody had a few little, you know, a few little hot words for each other, but that was it. Because for Canada in particular, and, and of course there's impacts on the U.S., but we know who the big dog is in these negotiations, and it isn't Canada. So we, we do have to, I think, be a little more cagey. The other thing, too, that I think we should sort of keep in mind is that Trudeau's only just over a year away from an election. So there's going to be a lot of, we're going to see a lot of stuff in the next little while that is way more geared to being reelected in the federal election of 2019 than perhaps necessarily being good for Canada. That's unfortunate because we have this huge negotiation underway at a time when we have political reality. And as you know, Mexico's election is, is in July. Mm-hmm. And they're so, definitely so going frankly, socialist. You know, there's not going to be any substantive movement on a three-country deal in the next little while, but purely because of Mexican politics. You know, so it's, you know, it's you a know, big mess. Catherine, we, we know Donald Trump's been saying for some time, he's been sending signals for some time that what he would prefer is a bilateral agreement between yeah. Canada and the United States, and then if they're going to work something out with Mexico, they'll do that separately. But what he wants is a bilateral agreement between Canada and the United States, and that does not fit the agenda of Mr. Trudeau, and it doesn't fit the agenda of at least four of the other six who were at the uh, G7 over the last two days. Yeah, and I also I also don't think that's the best outcome. Uh, that would be a, a sort of a last-ditch uh, resort on the part of Canada to save something, in my view. Um, for many, many industries, and for consumers, let's not forget, you know, we talk about industries and jobs and stuff, but free trade in general has been so beneficial to consumers, and not just NAFTA, but, you know, global agreements and so on. So very beneficial to, to consumers. And, and any disruption of that will be very harmful for consumers. If the President so, of the United States says, that's what I want, and he's going to be around until 2024, well, if he says, that's what I want, and he insists on that, with an election coming up, as you pointed out, in a year's time, that, is, that doesn't leave a lot of wiggle room for us. Okay. No, it doesn't. And, and like I say, as opposed to nothing, uh, I don't think we should be totally, you know, unreceptive to that. But it's not ideal. It's not. We, we did have an FTA with the U.S., as you may recall, yes, for a number I of do. years. And then the powers that be thought it was more sensible to have the three country. And I, I agree. That's the that was the better, uh, you know, so the, the better outcome. But, yeah, I, there's so many balls in the air right now, too. There's, there's so much posturing, but yeah. very real economic stakes, very real jobs, and Canada will be the one to suffer the most, no question. You know, for us who are just responding to what happened over the last 24 hours and are hearing so many different points of view and absorbing so many different opinions, it becomes almost impossible to keep a focus on the big picture. So I was saying to a caller earlier, we, we, we can't see the horizon. We become so narrow-focused that we go back to our most favorite, most comfortable argument, and that in this country may be, certainly among people who call this program on a regular basis, is that there's a lot of criticism of the prime minister of this country, and he's earned it. He has justifiably earned it. So that's the fallback position. If you don't really, if you can't focus on what's going on, and it's tough to do that, then you go back to the fallback position, which may or may not be appropriate. Let me read you an email that I received. And this is, the, this is in, in the vein of what I'm seeing and I've seen over the last hour and a half. Hi, Roy. This is from Mike. 
I watched Stephen Harper on Fox News this morning and was reminded what it was like to have an adult as Prime Minister. If Mr. Harper was still the leader of Canada, this trade dispute would have been resolved months ago. Trudeau was in his absolute glory at the G7 announcing the World Education of Women program, appearing virtuous with his social justice agenda is much more important to him than this meat and potatoes issue like trade and tariffs. That's right or wrong. That's sort of the, that's the middle ground of the uh, middle position of the emails that I'm seeing. Uh, and, and frankly, I think it, it was a, quite an astute observation. Uh, uh, the, the, when I first saw that this G7 priority was going to be gender issues, and I'm not underestimating gender issues in the big picture, but when we've got a super crucial trade deal on the line right now for Canada, we're hosting this thing so we get to you know have a little more input into what the agenda is, to put that as the top priority? No, no, I'm sorry. That just doesn't make sense. And don't think, and, and knowing Trump as we have sort of gotten to know Trump, putting so, some of that social justice stuff front and center, you know you're going to antagonize the guy. I mean, was it meant to antagonize him? you you, you got to wonder, because he, you know he's not, he's not going to view that stuff very favorably. So and you know that I don't he, think that was sensible. You know, I Catherine, really he, he noted the fact that Justin Trudeau was in Meet the Press with Chuck Todd because he said, you know, they go on talking about how our troops have fought shoulder to shoulder for so many years. So clearly he was tuned into what Justin said, uh, Justin Trudeau said to Chuck Todd, who is definitely an anti-Trumper. And he's been sitting and waiting to fire back. And we know that uh, Donald Trump will use his Twitter account to say what he wants to say or get at what he wants to get at, like it or not. He doesn't care. No, he just no, that's doesn't care. But, but also, Trudeau's taken more pot shots at Trump than just on that interview. I mean, that was a notable example because there was, as you say, a journalist that was clearly anti-Trump, so he was playing into that, you know, that, that whole narrative. Well, they chose that program. The Trudeau gang chose the program. That wasn't the only instance where he's taken this kind of pot shots. There have been a number of them. Columbia and University. Of course, of course Trump and his staff are going to know that. They're going to find out about that. And I, I mean, again, of course, of course you defend Canada's interests, but the way you do it is really important. And I don't think taking pot shots at Trump, and some of them are deserved, but taking pot shots like that, it's kind of, I, I thought today when I was reading Trump's tweets and hearing Trudeau, I thought, are you two little boys in the schoolyard here, mm. you know, and, and, and trying to punch each other out or something? It just sounded childish and silly. And, uh, and I just don't think that's really appropriate when you're negotiating something that's hugely important economically. Let me, ask you, a lot of let me ask you one more question. If you could go back to just before the G7 began, if you could go to the day before, and you looked at the players and you thought about who was there and what's happened over the last couple of weeks, what's going on with the tariffs issue, how the European Union and the European community has reacted, it was almost predictable that something was going to go seriously off the rails by the time Saturday evening rolled around. Oh, I think you're right, because, uh, of course, Trump's tariffs were also directed at the EU, so they were feeling aggrieved as well, and they're much more on, on track with the whole so social justice thing and so on than the U.S. is right now. So, yeah, I think you're right. It was probably inevitable. Uh, why, but why, I guess why make it worse than it had to be? I don't mm -hmm. know that it had to be worse. Was Trump planning to leave early from the get-go? I don't know the answer to that question. Maybe he was. I think but, so. Because uh, he had know, to get I, to I Singapore. I don't think that, that kind of schoolyard banter was necessary in such an important uh, meeting. By the time uh, the meetings with Kim Jong-un are over, or almost over, or 
by the time they start, this story is going to be on the back pages. Well, you're probably right, because that's such a huge, <laughs> that is a huge deal oh, it is. If, if, if that happens successfully. Um, but for Canada, though, this is too important an issue. It, it won't be, like you say, it won't be the headline one in the press, but it's going to be on a lot of Canadians' minds as to how we're going to, you know, skin this cat, this whole trade deal, get it yeah. back on track, because yeah. yeah. it is so important to our keep the Keep the communications going. Keep the communi- communications Absolutely. flowing. Thank you, Catherine. Thanks for the time. Take care. Catherine Swift, WorkingCanadians.ca, former CEO and president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. The Roy Green Show podcast, ready and waiting for you anywhere, anytime. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or Google Play today. We were on a track to having to spend 30 to 40 million dollars in the coming years uh, fighting and settling uh, a case that we were destined to lose. You do remember that, don't you? Uh, the Prime Minister saying that if we didn't pay Omar Cotter $10.5 million, that it would cost us 30 or $40 million, and uh, we were going to lose that case. The ever-prescient Justin Trudeau, who knows what the courts are going to do before it even gets to court. Now, this isn't any sort of play to get Justin Trudeau back into the bad books, if he ever got out of the bad books. This is just the way the show evolved today, because there is... A story, in fact, there's more than one story, that seems to relate to Omar Khadr and seems to relate to Omar Khadr in the sense that convicted terrorists appear to have learned well that there's money available from patsy Western governments. And in the United States and the United Kingdom, terrorists, convicted terrorists, are suing governments or preparing to sue sue governments or threaten to sue governments because they say their rights are being manipulated and being sort of taken away from them. Uh, Just reading a story here, another terrorist sues the Bureau of Prisons from IPT News. You'll love this. You will absolutely love this. Not, Not the guy, but you'll love this. Recently, underwear bomber... Umar Farouk Abdul Mutalab filed a lawsuit. Says not only are his religious rights being violated, the suit claims, but the conditions of his confinement, quote, prohibit him from having any communication whatsoever with more than 7.5 billion people, the vast majority of people on this planet. So he's upset and he's suing because he can't communicate with 7.5 billion people. Now, I don't know how that lawsuit will go forward and how many witnesses they would call and what's likely to happen, but in the UK and in the US, convicted terrorists are suing governments or preparing to sue governments because they can't have it their way. Scott Newark is with us, former Alberta Crown Attorney, and a former executive officer of the Canadian Police Association. Scott also served as a senior policy advisor to a federal minister of public safety, and he's an adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University. So I, uh, I, I, I'm not surprised, Mr. Newark, but when I look at this developing on both sides of the Atlantic, there's communication going on that uh, in England and, and the U.S. and God knows where else, Convicted terrorists are saying, hey, there's money to be had, and Omar proved it to us. 
So what's your, just to give us an overall perspective, yours, on what's going on. Yeah, this is, this is a, a complicated issue. And actually, the author of the uh, column that you cited, Patrick Dunleavy, I uh, first had interactions with him when I was working in Washington in 2005 with the Investigative Project on Terrorism. And Patrick was working for the uh, New York State Department of Prisons, and he essentially was the person who uh, discovered and started exposing what was the infiltration of the prison system by Islamist groups. And the article that he is uh, writing, or that you cited that he uh, is writing, is just one other aspect of that, where individuals who are in custody, having been convicted of terrorism offenses, one of the uh, manifestations, if you will, of uh, what they do and the threat that they pose is what you're describing. They have realized um, that uh, they view this as a potential weakness. And in this case, what he is suing on about is the prison restrictions on his, quotation marks, religious activities, uh, which the prison officials correctly are restricting because of their concerns about radicalizing other people inside prisons, which is a known fact. That is one of the major areas of radicalization in prisons in uh, all around the world, um, and also literally a threat to the security of either uh, other inmates or of uh, uh, prison officials. And so these guys have figured out you know, that our system, and, and in particular, Roy, it's made even more difficult that the uh, the threat, uh, which is actually very similar uh, to a gang inside the prison culture, that's been noted many, many times, uh, that they have, because it's founded in a religious ideology and because we cherish, you know, freedom of religion, they're using this as an attack tool against uh, the larger system so as to be able to get what they want because they think we'll be too politically correct to defend it. And in the, in the UK, and I absolutely concur with what you've said, you have more, much more knowledge than I do, but I've also been reading for some period of time now that there's a lot of uh, uh, conversion attempts being yes. made to, uh, to get people who are in prison for something else to join the terrorist cause. Or yeah, join and people, people don't necessarily appreciate this, but this go actually goes back uh, when the discovery of this first came uh, uh, to the uh, spotlight, uh, post 9-11, and it was of a guy named Abdurrahman al-Mahdi, uh, and um, he, was, uh, he was actually ultimately convicted of terrorism relation offenses in relation to potentially uh, killing a Saudi prince founded by, uh, or funded by uh, uh, Muammar Gaddafi. But what was discovered as they were going through this guy's information and his connections was that actually he was part of a larger-term Muslim Brotherhood plot to infiltrate both the military and the prison systems and get their extremists into being, you know, uh, the quotation mark, Muslim chaplains. And it was discovered after the fact that this is something that had been ongoing. And Patrick Dunleavy, the guy who wrote that column, was one of the people that helped expose all of this. And it was being used, literally there was a recognition that this was a potential recruiting source both by conversion and as well by radicalization of people inside prisons who would then be released and continue their connections. And that's been identified on different groups that exist currently uh, around the world, including in the United States, I should add, as well, too. And that's why this is a significant threat. The good news is, two pieces of good news, if I could say. Number one is 
that we do actually have the evidence. And so what should be happening here is that if you run into a lawsuit like this or a situation like this or a complaint, you go to the adjudication process and call the necessary evidence that it does exist to show why it is that officials are taking the actions they are to restrict uh, the, these kinds of activities that have negative public safety consequences and officer safety consequences. The second piece of good news, I think, this is something I've been involved in uh, going back even to 2008 as well, too. I helped, I was doing some work in Trinidad and Tobago and helped connect with our uh, Correctional Service of Canada officials, internal preventive security officers, intelligence unit of Correctional Service of Canada. Uh, we've done a pretty good job in Canada, in my assessment, of how we're actually dealing with this. We recognize that the potential threat is there. We've had one case example in particular about it. But I think we are actually uh, out in front of it in this by candidly acknowledging this is a potential threat and demonstrating the willingness to be able to say, no, we're not going to just bend into political correctness. Mm. Well, there was a story not so long ago, or maybe a year or two ago, that had to do with chaplains in prisons in Canada, and there were complaints that the chaplains were Christian. And then the, if I remember correctly, you probably have more information on this than I do, but they changed that. The, uh, the, the Christian chaplains were removed, were they not? There has been an ongoing uh, change in this over the, uh, the last decade or Maybe so. Maybe it was Kingston. There was, they reduced, actually, the um, uh, Muslim um, uh, imam uh, program. Then they also, you're quite correct, they did actually reduce that as well, too. It's something that has been ongoing. Yeah. But the... Um, so, so, Scott, why are we paying so much attention to these people? And by these people, I mean the convicted terrorists. I understand that our prime minister seems to have an affinity and a particular um, affection for certain individuals and is interested in protecting them. I, I, I don't understand why, but I understand that he's doing that. I've seen, you know, we've covered the stories. Now, why, when you have somebody who has been convicted of a criminal offense, of, a, of, a, of an offense of terrorism, why do they even, and I, ha- I know what the answer is, but please humor me. Why do they even have access to the outside world? Why do they have access to sue for, you know, for millions of dollars because they say their rights have been violated? You've been convicted of one of the most heinous crimes that exists in humanity. Nobody wants to hear from you again, or at least in our societies, we don't want to hear from you again. Shut the door, close them off, let their voices never be heard again. Well, that's not the society we live in, is it? No, I know. I know okay. that. Both I from that. The, the, legislate, the governing legislation, the Corrections and Conditional Release Act, as well as, as the Charter. No, I get it. But you tell me what's wrong with what I said. Um, well, because it's, it's frankly contrary to the balancing of interests that is the law and the uh, uh, culture of uh, Canada. And it's been reinforced no, but by... What's wrong with what I said? Well too. But that's the point, Roy, is that it is a balancing of interests. Mm. And... We need to, and I think we are doing a pretty good job of it, actually, of recognizing the reason that we need to take these restrictions uh, is because of the nature of the threat that's involved. As I always put it, um, you know, uh, check your rights at the door. They'll be waiting for you on the, uh, the way out. But you do not get to exercise all of your rights the same way, what was it, as, as a non-convicted individual living That's the- right. That's what they said. That's yes. what Correctional Terms Service okay, Canada don't get said. To, but- Unconvicted. Yes, but what we do has to be done in the context and evidence Yeah, but Scott, we used to say that when the first-degree murderers had a right to Section 745. Right. 
that now now that's been taken away so there's there's yeah we changed it there's nothing that says we cannot say to somebody who's been convicted of of a terror an offense of terrorism we're never going to hear from you again rights forget it well it's not no i know don't don't make the assumption though that we're not taking proactive uh uh, measures Uh, the one case in particular was a guy uh, was one of the Toronto 18. Actually, he I had involvement with his case before the Toronto 18 arrest, Ali Muhammad Diri, mm-hmm. and the people at Correctional Service of Canada, the intelligence group that I mentioned, they recognized what he was doing and took measures to stop it. Do you remember when the individuals there was the half dozen or so that were under security certificates as well too yeah. on terrorism grounds? We had them in special facilities yeah. precisely because there okay. is a legal justification to take special measures. All right, so let me raise this point, then we'll take a break and answer the question when we come back, please. In the UK, prison officials have special segregated housing units for convicted terrorists, but they're not being used because officials fear the terrorists will sue for their human rights being violated. We'll come back with Scott Newark, former Crown Attorney, former Executive Officer of the Canadian Police Association. He's an adjunct professor now at uh, Simon Fraser University, was also a security advisor to the federal government and to the uh, government of Ontario. That's prior to the liberals, who are now not even a, not even an official party. And I have to say this. I've been receiving email after email asking me, what do you think should Doug Ford, I was going to talk about this earlier and then got into other things, should Doug Ford grant the Liberals official party status in Ontario? No. Visit Apple Podcasts or Google Play now and sign up for the Roy Green Show podcast 100% free. 100% Roy. Let's come back to Scott Newark, former Crown Attorney in Alberta and uh, adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University. So my question was, I can't remember what the question was, but answer it, please. Let me push the button. Click them on here. Go ahead, Scott. They act the way uh, that they do. Uh, and there was a story about that, that the British had, uh, at least one branch of government had uh, essentially recognized the nature of the threat we've been discussing, and so they created special facilities. But the other, another branch of the government decided, as you say, uh, oops, if we actually put these people in there, somebody might say that we're being discriminatory. So, in fact, they weren't taking the necessary steps to take advantage of the specialized circumstances that they had created. And this takes us back to the very first thing you said, and that's the concern about these individuals being able to get to and affect the thinking of other prisoners who are not in there for any terrorist-related activities and convert them into their way of thinking. But you can't can't put them into the special housing that was created for them to avoid exactly that kind of thing because you might be violating their human rights. We have lost our collective minds. And and I think even worse, whether you actually... uh, Because I don't think you are. uh, And you'll notice when you talk about civil rights and civil liberties, the modifier of the words rights and liberties is civil. In other words, it's that which exists in the context of a civil society and that's why I say the evidence definitely exists to demonstrate why we are taking the measures that we are, but you've got to have the backbone to be able to be willing to go to court and actually defend it. Yeah. And when I read that article about the British, I just rolled my eyes because that has the feel of sort of bureaucrats that don't want anybody to challenge them because it might not look good on their career 
advancement sheet. You know what it looks? It sounded to me like somebody saying we had to pay him now because if we didn't pay him now, we'd be paying him 20 or $30 million a few years from now. Well, you know, that is something that, uh, as I say, when I, saw, I, I was, when I was a prosecutor, I was involved in a, a case involving bikers, and it was about them getting a firearms acquisition uh, permit. And I won't go into all the details, but the bottom line was um, I helped direct the police to say, no, the guy was a member of a bike gang or a criminal organization. Turn it down. And we went to court and fought it. And we called the expert evidence, and we got, and the judge agreed and gave us the ruling supporting that. It's that same kind of strategy that needs to be taken here. And one of the things that I think is so frustrating about people, for people in Canada in relation to uh, the Prime Minister's um, actions on uh, Omar Khadr uh, is that he just you know, rolled over and we never went to court. We never took the opportunity to explain why it was that our officials did what they did and instead just cut the guy a check. That's what I think is at the core of what so many people find frustrating because the evidence, and we'll go back to the prison issue, the evidence exists to demonstrate why we are doing what we are mm-hmm. doing and why it's reasonable and justifiable, but you've got to be willing to go to court and get in the fight and defend what's right. Yeah. Now, we, you and I have had a, an ongoing feature that pops up every now and then, and it's called Just Another Week in the Canadian Justice System. So you sent me an email a couple of days ago, just another week in the Canadian justice system, and from the Vancouver Sun, let me just read the first line. If a federal court judge has ruled that a United Nations gang associate should be allowed out of immigration detention pending his deportation to Iraq, what's up with that? Oh, it's insane. This is a guy uh, who's a non-citizen criminal. He was on bail for dealing drugs, and while on bail for dealing drugs, uh, he... uh, took a job with another gang to uh, do a hit on a guy, another gang member, and he did, and he shot him, but he didn't kill him. And so his bail was revoked, and then while he was in custody waiting trial on that one, he was convicted of the drug dealing and got, I think, like a three-year sentence. But when he was ultimately convicted of the shooting that he committed while he was on bail, uh, they gave him credit for the time that he served, even though he was actually serving a jail sentence. And so this guy goes into, you know, our prison system, and believe it or not, we actually release him early from his sentence. He's awaiting deportation. The CBSA has got the steps going to have him removed, and so he's in custody. And don't forget, released early from the jail sentence, and some uh, federal court judge decides, oh, well, that's not uh, very nice. Let's release him uh, while he's awaiting deportation. What? Like, that is just absolutely ridiculous. You talk about a misuse of the, uh, the discretion that is uh, provided. You constantly hear about people saying, oh, you know, the government shouldn't interfere with discretion of the judges and everything else. And I generally agree with that. But it's when you have boneheaded decisions like this. Okay. And by the way, what happens if this guy, for example, while he's out early on his sentence, okay, that he should be deported for, what about if he hurt somebody else? I had a tough childhood. Yeah, right. I don't care. No, but that's what the, somebody will say something stupid like I that. I don't care. The well, I'm on your is, side. He can be removed, and he doesn't have to be yes, removed sir. early. So let's use the legal tools yes, that we have and get people like this off our streets. 
Good talking to you as always, Mr. Newark. Thanks for the time, Scott. All right, Roy. Take Bye-bye. care. Scott Newark on The Green Show. Want to hear more Roy Green? We've got you covered with the Roy Green Show podcast. Subscribe now at Apple Podcast or Google Play. Some days it's a stabbing pain. Um, some days it's just feeling like it's like your your bones are hurting from the inside out. Um, it's every day is something different. It jumps from one area to another. And just when you're in pain all the time, it literally, it just starts to make you completely crazy. I can't walk. I, I, I'm essentially useless. I just, I'm unable to ambulate. If I'm able to get around it, I have to drag my lower body around the house because my spine is uh, that painful. It won't hold my legs up. Um, and I just sit around and cry. I mean, it, I am not able to uh, be useful to anybody, at least of all my children. There are millions of people in North America who are suffering similarly. Millions of people who are suffering with intolerable chronic pain, who cannot get around, who cannot live their lives in any way close, uh, even closely resembling a normal life. They can't because they are in such chronic agony, such distress. And yet their medications, which have been prescribed sometimes for many, many years, 20 years, 10, 15 years, opioid pain medications, which made their lives livable, didn't take the pain away completely, but it made lives livable. Their medications have been stolen from them by a system which doesn't give a damn about them. And that's the truth. That's the way it is. And you can hear all of the spin about opioids being terrible for pain patients. Or there's the, uh, there's the opioid crisis with people dying because they overdose. Well, for the most part, the people who overdose are unfortunate generic drug addicts. They don't have chronic pain. They are unfortunate generic drug addicts who get their drugs from street corner dealers. And that is what takes their lives. It's not the pain patient who is in that statistical category unless the pain patient is forced to go and see the drug dealer on the street corner because the doctor won't provide the medication which provides help. And there's so much BS about it from people who should know better but refuse to come on this program, refuse to debate me, refuse to debate Marvin Ross. They've been asked time and again. They've been given opportunity to come in. I've said to them, I've offered them one hour in studio, two hours in studio. We'll do it by phone. We'll do it with you with us. We'll do it in Toronto. We'll do it in Hamilton, wherever you are. We will go to you. And they won't do it. And I'll tell you why they won't because they haven't got the courage, because they know their argument is so full of holes that Marvin Ross and I would poke it, we'd sink it in the first two minutes. Marvin Ross is um, an amazing man. He understands, he writes about health issues for HuffPost Canada, and he's taken on the issue of chronic pain and he's a researcher, and if you want to get into a debate, if you want to get into a fight over, over health issues and over policy, don't get into it with Marvin Ross. 
he'll eat your lunch. <laughs> he will eat your lunch seven days a week. Uh, Andrew Coster is a British Columbia man who suffers with chronic pain. And uh, he was not going to put up with this for, for going on. The fact that doctors wouldn't treat him and that he couldn't get the medication that he required, the opioids that he required, and he fought. And so a couple of days ago, we heard from the College of Physicians and Surgeons of British Columbia, particularly from the, uh, the, uh, the registrar of the college, the doctors in British Columbia should not ever, were not allowed, should not uh, refuse to treat chronic pain patients, and they should treat them with opioids as necessary. Now, the question is, how much have things actually changed, if they have? Um, Marvin Ross is with me. Andrew Coster is with me. Andrew, thank you for taking the time. Congratulations for getting the iceberg to move. Well, you um, first of all, thank you so much for this invitation. Um, I, um, you know, in answer to your question about, you know, what has really changed, we, we simply don't know yet. These are, these are new standards. They just came out last week. A draft was circulated a few months ago, and clinicians had an opportunity to weigh in. They didn't want the public to comment on what the, what the guidelines or the draft guidelines slash Standards we're going to say they only wanted to hear from the public if there were any, if there were any great omissions, but not on the the, the contents or the nuances of the uh, of these of these standards. But they're out, and we shall see. I call it a work in progress. I don't think they're there yet, and I think a lot of very good folk in uh, BC, uh, clinicians and activists, and People who help the pain community are are still going to hold the college to task. Well, this has to this has to happen, Marvin. Let's uh, let's pick up the the issue and we'll go to the ISIS story. That's I C E S. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Yeah, uh, it's certainly not, not a terrorist organization. <laughs> well, I'm not sure about they that. Might, they might terrify pain patients. Uh, yeah. Uh, thank you for the kind things you've said about. Well, it's me. all true. And for what you do on behalf of patients with chronic pain, but uh, ISIS stands for the Institute for Clinical and Evaluative Studies, uh, funded by you and I through our tax dollars, and there are a bunch of researchers. Um, a couple of them, I think, rather infamous, Dr. Tara Gomes, who I believe is a PhD and not an MD. And, of course, David Gerlink, who is uh, well-known as uh, a member of the group Physicians for Responsible Opioid Prescribing, which is a very anti-opioid group. And they turn out these research reports of very dubious value. And the one that I saw about two weeks ago uh, had a headline screaming in their press release, one in four doctors prescribing above uh, the opioid guidelines maximum. And so I read the paper, and what they do is known as data mining. They take an enormous database that they have access to, and then they mine it for whatever studies they can get out of it. And they looked at the prescribing in 2015-2016 
uh, uh, new opioid prescriptions or, you know, naive patients and concluded that one in four doctors prescribed more than 50 milligram equivalent of morphine, which they said was over the limit. Now, (laughs) the interesting thing is that the CDC guidelines in the U.S. didn't come out till almost the end of their study um, in 2016. And... Of course, the CDC guidelines are not um, valid in Canada. They're not accepted in Canada, and that has, um, you know, 50 MED maximum. The Canadian guidelines didn't come out until 2017. So remind us, because I have to take a break here. These this this study su- suggested that one in four doctors is prescribing over the daily maximum of opioids. Uh, and it said in 2015 or 2000, and 2016, but the information didn't come out until 2017? Well, the guidelines didn't come out. The guidelines until, didn't come yeah. out until 2017. Yeah, so what they were saying, uh, I know you're rushing to commercial, but uh, what they were basically saying is doctors were too stupid to know what the guidelines might be in the future. Hmm. And so you got onto them, and let's get an answer on this too. You went to the, you got onto them. You've been in touch with them. You've been in touch with their CEO, who I invited to be part of this of, of this session. As you know, you saw the email, yep. copy of the email that I sent uh, to the uh, to uh, Doctor uh, Shul, sure, and yeah. I invited him to be part of this program. Never heard back. Didn't hear back from Doctor Gomes when I invited her. Uh, what have you heard back? What have they done? What are they doing? The right thing to correct the problem? Well, yes and no. They were forced to. Um Dr. Shul emailed me back. We had an exchange of emails, and he said, we can't retract the study because somebody disagrees with it. And I said, I don't disagree with it. It's wrong. So I got in touch with the editor-in-chief of the journal Pain um, in Philadelphia. I forget what his name is. And much to my uh, surprise, he said he would investigate it, And lo and behold, they were forced to revise the publication, revise the paper in the publication to admit that the guidelines didn't exist at that time. Now, they also uh, put an addendum on their press release, but the press release that's on their website still says one in four doctors uh, not abiding by the non-existent guidelines. I've got it here. Nearly a quarter of all Ontario newly prescribed opioids received a daily dose exceeding clinical guidelines. Yeah. Is that the one? Yeah. Okay. And um, I have to take a break. Picked up by ten media outlets, all of whom have broadcast it. Yeah. Um, across North America. All right, Marvin. Hold on. I have to take a break. We will come back with Marvin Ross. We'll talk more with Andrew Coster as well about his situation and what's going on in British Columbia because across this country, chronic pain patients need access to their medication. They don't need to have roadblocks placed in their way. They don't need to be screaming in agony because they can't get the medication they require, and they certainly don't need to be considering suicide. And I've, I've been in touch with, 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 with a number of these people and let them know that there was a 30-year-old police officer, woman, Mom of a 12-year-old recently took her own life because she was denied the pain medications she required, that she was racked by pain, and she just could not 
live any longer. If they'd given her the opioids that she'd been getting previously, she'd still be a cop. We'll come back. The Roy Green Show podcast is the only podcast hosted by Roy Green. Which makes sense. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Please follow me on Twitter at The Roy Green Show, at The Roy Green Show, and listen back to anything that we air. We have our podcasts at RoyGreenShow.com, and you can subscribe to that as well. Just go to RoyGreenShow.com. Never a day goes by, literally, never a day goes by that I don't receive multiples of emails from chronic pain patients across Canada and the United States. Never a day goes by where they don't detail the hell they're going through and the fact that nobody seems to care about them and their doctors have cut them off. Physicians have said to them, we're not going to lose our licenses just to take care of you. Get out of my office. Some of them commit suicide. Andrew Coster was living with chronic pain in British Columbia. I want to talk to you, Andrew, about what happened. So you were, your issue was your back. Talk, tell it, what, what was the pain like that you were living with, and what happened when you tried to get the medication that you'd been receiving previously? What happened? Well, the issue with me is a, a, a number of different forms of um, arthritis, osteoarthritis. In fact, I'm two months from having a, a brand-new knee, a knee replacement, um, and I also have a disease uh, form of arthritis called ankylosing spondylitis, and that's where cartilage turns essentially to a bone-like substance, which can create huge flare-ups in one's back, um, and that's where it can be in the neck as well. I had been, <coughs> pardon me, I had been taking um, uh, opioids uh, with uh, my previous GP, and um, one day I went in to talk to him, about the fact that I wanted, I wanted to have a discussion with him about what would, what should we do next, because I felt that the the current uh, type of medications that I was on wasn't giving me the same pain relief that I had a couple of years previously. Now my pain levels could have increased. I could have been, I could have, my body could have gotten used to the these preparations. It was a discussion. Well, my doctor walked out on me uh, and said, "Well, I, you know." Um, he said, well, we should just see what goes on. Let's, let's see in three months what happens, uh, essentially, and then just walked out in the middle of this saying, I am in pain. And I stopped seeing that doctor and fortunately found another one who understood, and we had the discussion that uh, I initially wanted to have about altering pain, my pain management. Um, but it was a it was a huge uh, difficult experience for me, uh, and it hasn't been the only one in BC with chronic pain. I've been, of course, kicked out of um, emergency rooms because people thought I was seeking drugs. Uh, I've been told that as a chronic pain patient, I shouldn't go to the ER, even though I can't. I haven't for a week been able to straighten my back, and I can't walk. Um, it's just it just seems as if the fixes in on chronic pain patients. It is. So, so what happened when you, how did you persuade, or how was the college persuaded to change its position or adjust its position? Because I think the maximum they wanted was 50 milligrams a day, and it, made it, it was difficult to get that kind of, to even get op- opioids, as you pointed out, in British Columbia. What did you do to change that? Well, there were a lot of people. There were a lot of people that changed that. Um, I, I think... I think that we have, we're so fortunate in BC. We have an organization called Pain BC, and uh, the, it's a government-funded organization, 
and their mandate is uh, is is many fold. They're to advocate for pain patients who who can't speak for themselves, but they also have a huge role in raising awareness on to healthcare professionals, GPs, um, OTs, anybody in the in the service about what it means to live with chronic pain. Okay. Can I, 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 I just want to read something, because we're running short on time. I have to read this, guys. This is from Anthony. I, got, I received this. On Monday, June 4th, CSPBC College Registrar Heidi Otter clarified that physicians cannot exclude or dismiss patients from their practice because they've used or are currently using opioids. It's really a violation of the Human Rights Code, and it's certainly discrimination, and that's not acceptable uh, or, or ethical practice, end quote. On Thursday, Anthony writes, I made an appointment to see my family doctor in Ontario. I got an appointment for July 10. Previous to January 3, 2017, I was able to see my family doctor within a day or two. January 3, 2017 was the day I was informed of the new guidelines from the DeGroote School of Medicine at McMaster University. My medication was forcibly, forcibly cut by 50% in four weeks. Um, according to the guidelines, this reduction should have taken at least 20 weeks. I have both Crohn's and colitis, diagnosed in 1998, and have been relatively stable on a combination of medicines, including opioids, for the last 14 years. Despite my tearful plea to stop the tapering, I was again forced to decrease my medication by another 40% last April of 2017. My doctor's response was, do you want me to lose my license? I am now at the guideline level of 90 milligrams MED. I used to have just two fistulas that I lived with. Now I have 12. I first lost the ability to work part-time. Then I lost the ability to have my daughter every every second weekend. Then I lost the ability to insure my vehicle. Then I lost my transportation. I don't leave the house very much anymore. Now I'm in court battling with my ex who wants full custody of our 12-year-old daughter. I haven't seen her since April of last year. I saw four different pain specialists last year who all offered me medical cannabis. The last one told me that in order to follow the guidelines as written, I needed to obtain a letter from my local MPP. You are welcome to read this on air. Gentlemen, that's all the time I have. I thank you for joining us, both of you, Marvin Ross, Andrew Coster. We'll have you back on. We will not let go of this issue. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Thank Ryan. you. Thank you. And that's it for today's podcast or The Roy Green Show on this Sunday, June the 10th. Thanks for joining us. The Roy Green Show podcast is available wherever you find podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. If you like what you hear, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a review and tell a friend.